carrying that secret wasn't, wasn't easy. And so the way that I coped and tried to escape who I was is by using drugs and alcohol. And I started doing that at the age of 13. What's up, friends? Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast, your one-stop shop for hearing from incredible damn givers and for learning how you can give a damn right now, today, with the people around you and in the places around you. I'm your host, Nick LaPara. Thank you so much for being here. So, how's your summer? I personally can't wait till it's over. We currently live in the Southeast, which means it's way too hot, way too humid, and my asthma and allergies hate me so much, and their daily goal is to make my life a living hell. But I hope yours is going much better than mine, and you did not come here to hear me complain, so moving on. As you know, June is Pride Month. Now, why June? Well, here is a very concise primer for you. On June 28, 1969, police raided the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village, New York City, but the bar patrons weren't having it and they fought back. This incident, known as the Stonewall Riots, marks the beginning of the gay rights movement in the United States. The activist Brenda Howard organized a march and some other events to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Riots and, well, the rest is history. We now have June as Pride Month. So happy Pride to all of my LGBTQ friends. I love you all. Thank you for who you are. And that leads me into our guest today. I wanted to have my guest today on the show during the month of June because she is amazing. She is a huge damn giver and she is part of the LGBTQ community. Today, you'll get to hear my conversation with Lisa Schmidt. Lisa and her wife live in Portland, Oregon, one of my favorite cities. And among other things, she has started a community called The Sober Hipster, completely by accident. And you'll hear more about that in the show. Everything she does stems from these five words. You matter, your story matters. Lisa helped someone very close to me during a very difficult time in their life. We talk a little bit about this in our chat, as well as her upbringing when she knew she was gay, going through a very dark time in her life and what led her into that dark place, and so very much more. I loved hearing her story. I'm very, very inspired by her. So why don't I shut up so we can get right into it? Friends, here's my conversation with the sober hipster, Lisa Schmidt. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome Lisa Schmidt to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Lisa, welcome. Thanks, Nick. I'm really happy to be here. Good. And I'm happy that you're here. You and I have uh, internet known each other for two or three years now, probably two years. And I've so loved what I know of you from the internet, at least, and the kind of person you are and what you offer to the world. And so, and truthfully, We've been meaning to do this podcast together for quite some time as well, and we'll get to the reason why during our conversation because of a really amazing way that you helped somebody very close to me a few months back. But anyway, we have been internet friends for quite some time. Love what you're doing. So I'm very excited to have you here and get to share some of your story with the Let's Give a Damn family. So again, thanks for being here. This is exciting. Yeah, me too. Uh, I'm a big, a big fan of what you've been doing in the world as well and a fan of the podcast. And uh, so uh, all of the feelings that you just described are mutual. 
Wonderful. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that. So before we get into your story, before we really get going, you just let's let's start out very lighthearted. You were living in Orlando and you just moved to Portland. Tell me about that move because Portland is one of my favorite places in the entire freaking world for a bunch of very obvious reasons. So yeah, tell me about the move. How are things going? You've been there for a, what a month or two now. How how are things? Uh, it's fantastic. I mean, I fell in love with Portland back in 2016, had never been here uh, and just fell in love with it from afar and decided, uh, tried to talk my wife into taking a trip out here. And so we did the following year and uh, she was on board and we literally on the plane home to Florida, we made a plan to to come back and make a life here. And so, yeah, so in January, we, we came out for a second trip and then moved here in April. And uh, it's everything and more that we hoped it would be. I mean, the weather, the mountains, the forests, the the people, the culture, the food, everything. I mean, it just, I've never been someplace where I feel more at home and more myself than here. That's beautiful. Well, on a very practical note, uh, Orlando and Portland couldn't be any more <laughs> different from each other. I mean, if, if you had, if you were putting cities on a spectrum, they would be very, very on opposite sides of each other. So I know how you feel about Portland and I feel the same way. And so I, I wonder how you survive for so long in Florida, but maybe we'll get to that in your story. I'm so glad that you guys are settling in super well. Portland is amazing. It's all of that. If, if anybody listening has never been to Portland, like you gotta go. You gotta it's, check it out. It's the shit. It is. It's the shit. It's so good. So good. Okay. So let's uh, get into your story. Again, I know you as an internet friend. So a lot of what you're going to tell me, I'll be hearing for the first time. Go back as far as you want to in your story. But I would, before we get into uh, some of the work that you're doing now and how you're very tangibly helping people, tell me as much or as little of your story. Go back, people, places, things, whatever comes to mind when I say, tell me your story. Give us that so we can get some sense. Uh, for who you are and why you are the way that you are? Sure. From a, a very early age, I I kind of say that from the time I was around in the second grade, I knew I was different. Uh, and that feeling of being different is something uh, that I didn't have a word for at that age. I would come to later understand it to be that I knew I was gay. I didn't have a word for it. And I I didn't know what to do with it. All I knew is that I needed to keep it a secret. And somewhere along, I got the message that it was bad and it was wrong. As I, you know, going through elementary school and into middle school uh, and then even into high school, you know, I did not see anyone who looked like me. Uh, literally, I knew of one gay person in my high school. And so, wow. yeah, and even that person, it was quietly or, you know, not so quietly at times. He was talked about, um, you you know, it wasn't openly gay. It was in the closet. And there was a lot of negative connotations surrounding it, a lot of, a lot of stigma. Um, and so I learned very early how to be somebody that I wasn't and to be what other people needed me to be, wanted me to be. And yeah, so I had, I had girl crushes and teacher crushes and just, you know, coach, you know, all of those things. And at the same time, I also was looking for 
just love and acceptance. And so the way I found that uh, was through like playing sports and excelling in sports and, you know, making good grades. And I was looking for affirmate perfectionism. I mean, everything I did was to try to uh, was to try to be good enough and to achieve some measure of love and acceptance because of this feeling of being different. Of course, you know, by the time I was I was in high school, I I understood, you know, that I was gay, but I also understood that it wasn't okay. I didn't tell anyone, and I did all the things to lead what would be considered a normal life for a teenage girl. You know, I I dated boys. I I did all the things, went to prom, all of that. I I call it kind of like going through the motions of everyday life, trying to be what I thought I was supposed to be. You said when you were in, you know, just a few seconds ago, you said that you, you knew that you were gay, but you also knew that it wasn't okay. What was informing that? Was that you telling yourself that, or were that people around you or sort of what was going on, you know, at the same time that you were saying, this is who I am. You were also telling yourself, oh, but I, it's not okay. And I can't talk about it. And I'm, I'm genuinely asking because I think that's part of the experience that is so, so sad for me, you know, that, that people, whatever it is around them that's informing that kind of talk, that kind of speech uh, internally or externally. Yeah. I've heard that over and over again from friends of mine where it's like, I just knew that it wasn't okay to be this way. I think the biggest thing that informed my decision at an early age was just my thinking was just not seeing anyone, you know, representative of who I was, Mm. you know, at, at that time you heard things like tomboy, you know, I was called a tomboy and really that's all, I remember is, you know, just being a tomboy, playing sports. They didn't have girls teams, so playing on teams with boys. But also, I think what was kind of critical around that time as well is my parents divorced when I was 10. And so I think there was also this part of me that didn't want to make things harder on my family, on any, you know, because of what was going on. So I did, it wasn't even a thought like, maybe I should tell my mom or, Mm. you know, maybe I should tell a friend. It just didn't even, it was like my secret and it was my secret to keep. And I just kind of accepted this is how it was going to be. And that continued. I mean, so part of my story is, is by going through those motions, I eventually married a man. And when I was 21, I think along the way, I kind of, had it in my head that, okay, God's going to change me at some point. You know, I can remember, I can remember as a little girl and again, uh, throughout growing up, I can remember, I wasn't raised in church, but I can remember saying the classic, now I lay me down to sleep prayer. And my prayer kind of always ended with, I pray the Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord, my soul to keep. Well, when I was saying, I pray the Lord, my soul to keep, I was thinking, please change me and please don't let me go to hell. I had a real fear of something happening because again, I had this message that it wasn't okay. And those suspicions would later be confirmed in the church. But anyway, I, I went on to get married when I was 21. This is at the point in my story where I believed something was going to change. Like, okay, I'm going to get married, being married to a man is going to change me when I got pregnant with my daughter. Well, Hmm. this will be the thing that changes me. 
and this process of thinking just continued, you know, as I, as I got involved in church and, and started to, that came around the age of 25 when my second child was born, I was even baptized with them because I thought, okay, if I'm baptized and with my children and I'm trying to do the right thing, God will surely change me. And it didn't happen. And then, you know, later I was sprinkled and this may sound funny, but I was sprinkled in the church, the Methodist church with my children in my head. I thought, well, gosh, maybe it didn't work and maybe I need to be immersed. So I was baptized in the ocean. And I thought somehow when I came out of those waters, I would be changed and that didn't work. And then I started working in the church. Well, you know, I'm going to be on staff at a church. And then I, I, I went to seminary. And with all of these things throughout my life, I was continuously looking for God to change who I was and to make me okay. That secret followed, you know, I mean, I, I held on to it for a really, really long time and did a lot of a lot of things to, you know, to earn what I thought was God's love and approval and to be good enough and uh, it didn't work. So you're now married to uh, your wife. Take me on the journey through, because you've, you've alluded a couple times to your suspicions were confirmed about, you know, uh, kind of coming out in the church world and what that meant and what was what was at stake. And, and you've also alluded to, you know, you being baptized, uh, you know, being sprinkled and immersed. So you're obviously part of, you know, or at least at that point, you were part of a kind of church faith community. How was that? How were you treated? What all happened in that scenario? And then if, you know, again, as much or as little as you're willing to tell, you know, what happened with, you know, your first marriage and, you know, now, now you're married, just, I'm trying to, I want to, I want to kind of get a picture of how your story has evolved to what it is today. We were married almost 17 years. We were together almost 20 and, you know, both of us came from divorced homes and it was the last thing that we wanted was, was that for our children. And so, you know, that was part of it. Honestly, what happened for me is that I knew that that was not changing inside of me, that, that who I was, was who I was. And I reached a point where I came out to my husband thinking that okay, this is going to be the beginning of my freedom story. And it actually was not. Um, Mm. I came out and the very next day I found myself in a Christian counselor's office and I found myself being given all of these boundaries and rules of how I would live. And part of that was to go to conversion therapy. At that time, Exodus was still around and had Uh. offices in Orlando. And yeah, so I was, you know, given material to read and stuff to watch. And I met with, you know, a counselor from Exodus. And so even at the point in my adult life when I thought, okay, this is this is it. I I can't do this anymore. I have to tell him I have to get this out. I guess I felt even more trapped after that. And I did all of those things and to the point that I actually became suicidal because I 
I just felt, you know, I was dying inside. Mm. I really was. And I, I didn't see a way out. I didn't see, I just didn't see how I could keep going. As far as the faith community and the role of that, you know, I started out volunteering with the youth ministry at the church I was a part of, and that led to uh, working part-time on staff. And eventually I became the director of student ministries and felt a real, uh, to use the word that is used in, in the Christian sector, uh, I felt a real calling to go to seminary. I was pursuing an MDiv and with a focus in youth ministry. And uh, I worked a long time in that role and thought I had made some amazing, you know, I had people in that church that were not just friends, but I considered family. And you have to understand too. So this town that I'm referring, you know, it's a very small conservative town um, in Florida, in the South, you know, I mean, it's just one of the hardest places to be, to be gay, quite honestly. And so when people found out that, that I was going, you know, that we were divorcing and all of that, that was really difficult, but somehow I, I still felt supported. But once the news broke that there was more to it and that it was because when we told our children, uh, my, my son was going into middle school, my daughter was starting her senior year of high school. So when we told them that we were getting a divorce, I felt like I owed it to them for them to hear the entire story. I didn't want to, to tell them here, we're getting a divorce. And then six months later, they find out this other piece. And so I wanted it told all in the context of that. I wanted them, yeah, sure. you know, so that we could start dealing with it, healing all of that. And, um, and so that's what we did. And we kept it very, you know, I have to say that my ex was very great about, about respecting my privacy and, and trying to protect our children. You know, we were very much on the same page with that. But when word got out, things changed uh, very, very quickly. And I lost friends. Like, it was like overnight. I went to, from, from being this person and having this identity in a community uh, and with a church to not having a church, not having friend, church friends, family. Mm. And, you know, my kids were bearing a, a huge part of that uh, because they were still in in those communities, uh, at least in the beginning. Um, they eventually left the same church. But, you know, so it was there was a there was a big ripple effect uh, that happened with everything. Sounds uh, incredibly painful. I'm sorry that so much of that happened, you know, because I'll never stop hating when I hear these stories, and not just about people, you know, coming out, but the church, people of faith, people that claim to follow, in our case, as Christians like Jesus, mm -hmm. and, then, and then to treat other people that way. Again, regardless of how they feel about you know, who you are and the decisions you made in your family to, to go this way. And, you know, all, all of that stuff, regardless of how they feel about that, like that's just the, it's the opposite of the the things that we're called to. It's pretty mind boggling. And so you alluded to, you said earlier that you, at certain points in this uh, process, you were suicidal. I know some of that story because of some of the work that you do now. At what point in your story, at what point in your life 
did you say, hey, you know, I've been to hell and back and I've been through the ringer and so much has happened and I'm still here. I'm still fighting, you know, for my life and for my future. And now I want to help other people do the same. You are known uh, online. I came to know you uh, online as the sober hipster and this sort of brand that you've created to help people not be ashamed of their stories and you've created resources and you've helped so very many people. So what was that journey like? Cause that's, I, I'm, I'm real excited to find out things about this part of the story that I don't know, because I think it's a really uh, incredible thing that you're doing and I want to hear more. So tell me about the journey to becoming uh, the sober hipster. You know, running parallel, I guess in that story, as far as my coming out journey is the fact that carrying that secret wasn't, wasn't easy. And so the way that I coped and tried to escape who I was is by using drugs and alcohol. And I started doing that at the age of 13. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I was, you know, I was, I told myself for a long time that I was, you know, just like everyone else uh, as a teenager partying on the weekends. And even once I was married and, and going through that, but it was always a part of socialization. Uh, but it was also to be really frank, you know, it was what I used to be able to be a gay person in a straight marriage. Um, it's, it's how I coped with being able to be physically involved with a man because it wasn't true to who I was and it was nothing about him. It was about me. So, you know, drinking before, you know, having sex and drinking, uh, to, to go out and, and just to, to be okay with myself. So we divorced in 2010 and in 2011 is really where a lot of stuff for me, you know, just kind of came out more and more publicly. I moved, I was able to finally move out of this small town and move to Orlando and I thought I was kind of on track with uh, a different church and doing some different things. And then in the fall of 2013, I found myself again in a situation that I didn't feel like there was any hope. Uh, so when I say that I've been suicidal before, I've, I've actually been suicidal twice in my life. Uh, but the more significant time being in October of 2013. And I had a decision to make, you know, uh, this one was, was a lot scarier and, uh, it was time. Something had to change. Something had to be different. And honestly, I sat in a, a psychiatrist's office the, the morning after my incident. And she said, you know, you can either, I can put you in a, in a state run facility and you know what that's like from your past history, or you can have something to do with, where you go and, and what kind of help you get. And so I had been seeing a therapist for a few years that specialized in LGBTQ issues. And I said, you know, I want to be a part of this and I'm going to talk to my therapist. And so I did. And he said, you know, I think we've done a lot of talking, a lot of talk therapy. I really think what you need now is some trauma therapy. That was really a turning point for me. I and I and it's so funny because when I went to uh, the place is called the Refuge in Ocala, Florida, 
And when I went, I thought, okay, I'm going to go to this place and I'm going to do whatever trauma therapy is. And then at night, because I was going to, I wasn't going to be able to stay in the residential program uh, because of insurance reasons. I thought I'll go and I'll do this during the day and then I'll come home and I'll drink to be able to go to sleep at night. And in my mind, that made complete sense because how else was I going to get through dealing with all my trauma without using alcohol, you know? Sure. Yeah. And uh, so two weeks into the program, I relapsed and my therapist said, you know, that's it. You're, you're not in a good place. And we're going to put you in this three quarters house. They had a sober house, sober living facility. And that for me was, it was the best gift that I could have received. And I really started going through my trauma. I really, you know, I had to start going to 12 step program and, and that sort of thing. But to bring it to the part of the story that you're, you're wondering about, it was during my time in that sober living facility and going through that therapy that the sober hipster was being created. I just didn't know it. Hmm. So you're in this, it seems like a pretty intense uh, situation, right? It seems like a pretty intense, like uh, what, what happens at these sober facilities? Like, is it a, I mean, is it an everyday sort of thing? You're meeting with people, you're in groups and like what's happening there that is kind of pushing you toward creating this thing called the sober hipster? Like what, what's sort of happening to make you think, oh, I need to do this for other people when I get out? Yeah. So I actually, I wasn't thinking about it for other people. It was really what helped me process my thoughts, my feelings. You know, you go through individual and group therapy and you're there Monday through Friday all day. Uh, You're going to a meeting at night. And then on Fridays we had art therapy and I had never experienced art therapy. You know, I, I've always thought of myself as creative and I was creative when I did youth ministry, but I never saw myself as an artist or anything like that. And when putting those two words together, I thought, oh, art therapy, I'm not going to be good at this. You know, what I came to find out is that art therapy was just a way for me to do something with my hands and start to process what I had been through in my life. This is very common for people who have been through a lot of trauma. They don't know what they feel. They can't tell you, they can't really tell you how they feel. My, Mm. my classic response, anytime somebody would ask me, how are you is I'm fine. So by doing the art therapy on Friday, so that's all we did is we did art therapy for three hours, Friday morning, we would present our projects in the afternoon to a group. And then we had all weekend on our own. Well, that was a lot of downtime when you're newly in recovery and, you know, trying to stay sober and, and all that. And so I would take those projects and just keep going with them on the weekends. And then suddenly I was going and getting stuff and creating my own projects. And so really what I, what I've created with the sober hipster and with the story box is I've, I've created what I wish would have existed when I was early in recovery and put it, you know, I've kind of put it together into this box that uh, can be, you know, delivered right to someone's door. It really is born from my story. That's really beautiful. You know, as I've done this podcast now over a hundred episodes and as I've, um, you know, some of my favorite companies and projects and stories, 
are the ones birthed out of scratching one's own itch, right? Mm -hmm. You reflecting on your own story and saying, damn, I wish this would have been available to me. Let me create something that will prevent others from getting to this place. And that's that's a wonderful thing. Describe uh, the story boxes. And, and I'm, I love these. You know, you have three editions. I'll let you describe them. What I love about these is that, you know, last year, uh, one of my siblings was going through a really tough time, not under the same circumstances, but very similar to what you were going through. Her situation was more started with depression that led to a severe eating disorder and then to multiple suicide attempts and many more times uh, with suicide ideation. She's one of my closest friends. I love her to death. And I was talking about her, I forget even which which time it was or what what I posted about, but I was posting about, you know, asking for prayer and, you know, just really pouring my heart out uh, on social media. And you hit me up and said, hey, let me send her one of these boxes, one of these story boxes. And I think you guys even either wrote letters back and forth or chatted a few times. There was there was a little bit of ongoing conversation with my sister. And she she later told me, you know, I asked her about it, obviously, after she got her story box, how did it go? What what was it? What was it like? And she was immensely just grateful for A, your proactivity. You know, this is this is a product you sell, right? It's a, you know, it's sort of a it's a small business and it's you're creating these for people, but it is a, you know, an income source, I imagine. And and you when you offered it to me, you didn't say, hey, you know, send me some money for this and I'll send it to her. It was like, hey, I know your sister needs this. Let me send it to her. I, for one, am very grateful for these story boxes because I know firsthand that I don't know, you know, to what extent it saved my sister in a very, very hard time, but it did, you know, it truly helped her through a really difficult time where she was herself, she was in uh, rehab for, for quite some time. So, I, for one, am very grateful, but on that note, and with that little context for the audience, um, sort of describe the story boxes and how they help people and what is in them, and and then the different types of story boxes you um, have. Actually, I heard you talking about your sister on a podcast. You very briefly mentioned that you're, you know, someone close to you, one of your siblings was going through this. And that's right. Uh, was I ta- talking with Jamie Turkowski? I don't remember who it was, okay. but I, I remember hearing the pain in your voice yeah. when you were talking about yeah. her. And as soon as I heard you describing that, it was just impressed upon me that I needed to reach out and see if I could put one of these boxes in her hands that's what this is about, right? Like my, my, my story, I thought I would be doing ministry in a church with youth. And I've done numerous mission trips um, in the States, out, outside of the States. I thought that's how I was going to give back, that that's how I was going to make a difference in the world. What I found is that that's not where my story is going, you know, is going to be played out now, you know? And so that wanting to help and that wanting to give back and that wanting to serve, yes, it, I am a small business. I do sell it. But my intention is to give people hope, whether it be a little bit of a, a lifeline, whatever you want to call it. I know that I don't have the power to save anyone, but I do know that 
storytelling does help save lives. It was, you know, in the rooms of AA, it was the stories that changed me. And, and it continues to be the stories. And as I've shared my story, I have people, you know, that respond the same way because that's what stories do for us. And so, yeah, when I sent the one to your sister, uh, it was pretty amazing. She wrote me uh, a letter, wrote me a couple letters. Uh, we've actually messaged through social media. It was a beautiful, beautiful experience. And so what the story box is, is there's, uh, there's some basic supplies to get started in terms of uh, there's a customized journal, there's pens and Mod Podge and, and those kinds of things. But really what I consider the heart of the, of the story box are the story cards. And those are guided exercises that I've, I've written and that have come out of what I've been through and whether it's some type of art project or listening to a song or journaling or something that you do to remind yourself of something every day. So there's three editions. There's recovery, body image, and pride. So in my story, in my life, the three areas that I've struggled, obviously, I, I've struggled with addiction and I've struggled to love myself and the body that I'm in. And I struggled to be who I am. And so those three boxes are very natural to who I am and, and made a lot of sense to create around those areas. And so it's recovery from anything, whether you struggle with drug addiction, food addiction, alcohol addiction, self-harm. I'm recovery from self-harm myself. And um, so it can be recovery from anything. And those exercises and the things in the box are geared towards that. The body image box is focuses on those issues, you know, loving yourself and and particularly loving your body. And, you know, you had mentioned if there had been any kind of cool story. One one really cool story that stands out about the body image box is once I created this business two years ago, the very treatment center that I went to, the person who had been my second sponsor, she's actually now uh, the CEO of the refuge. And she invited me to start doing workshops at the treatment center at the refuge. So they'd have me come every three months and then it got to be once a month. And so this one time I, I do about 20 people to a workshop and I, we had already started this workshop and uh, this man walks in and he was late and I wasn't expecting him. And I had already given out all of the recovery boxes and all I had left was the body image box. And I tried to give those to the women. You know, when I walked up to him to give him his box, I started with an apology that I didn't know he was going to be in the workshop. All I had left was the body image box. And here I am apologizing. And he stops me and, and he says, I struggle with my body image. I struggle. And he like pointed to his, he's like, I struggle with my stomach area. I struggle. He was like, I think this was probably the right box for me. And he went on at the conclusion of that workshop, the way he, you know, when he shared with the group and, and the thing that he had made, like it was powerful, you know? And from that point forward, I, I realized, and I even changed the story cards in that box to not just be uh, geared towards women because men do have body image issues as well. Hmm. That was pretty cool. And then the third box, the newest box is, uh, 
is related, you know, around being proud of who you are, whatever that looks like. So it is my way of trying to give back to the LGBTQ community um, because I, I believe it's a struggle. I mean, even today, it's it's hard to be a person uh, in that community. And but at the same time, you know, I want people to be proud of what whoever whatever they are, you know. Um, so it, it's not limited to the LGBT community, but definitely uh, my heart my heart is there. And if you get that box, you will get some rainbow colors in there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, I know there are people listening right now that are connecting with what you're saying regarding these story boxes. And I hope some people will be proactive to find you online, the soberhipster.com, soberhipster on, you know, Instagram. I want some let's give a damn family to get some of these boxes. You know, I I had a good friend almost two weeks ago now take his life. And um last week, this past week, we had, you know, the we had the memorial and the receptions and the celebration and all that stuff. It was a it was a beautiful but very, very hard day because the really, really hard part is that it was one of those situations where even if you tried, you couldn't tell that he was hurting, that he was struggling. We all have bad days. We all have bad weeks and bad months, you know, but not to the point of, you know, being so deep in the darkness that you go through that decision. And so what I've been trying to focus on in my own life is to proactively check on people to not just the people that you'd think are dealing with that, but everyone, you know, anytime I think of somebody, uh, I try to do this pretty often anyway, but this last week, it's been uh, something I've done a lot more. A lot more people have received texts from me. A lot more people have received, uh, you know, emails from me and, um, you know, quick phone calls just saying, how are things, anything I can do for you? I say all that to say this, you know, the let's give a damn family are people that want to change the world. They do give a damn about, you know, one thing, two things, three things. They're amazing people, but amazing people still struggle. Amazing people are in recovery. Amazing people have body image issues that they're working through. You know, amazing people are hurting right now. And this past week has shown me in so many different ways that everybody's hurting and everybody's struggling. So I want the Let's Give a Damn family to get to know you and the resources you're creating, because I think they're good. I really do. I think they're really good. I think people, more people need to see these. And again, and I know this firsthand, not because I've had to go through one of your, you know, use one of your boxes for my own life, but because somebody very, very close to me, uh, one of my best friends in the whole world received one and used it and was, you know, tremendously helped by it. So I'm really grateful. And I really appreciate the love and the support that I, I, you know, I, I hear it. I've, I've felt it even before uh, doing this podcast, you know, and you really kind of come back to the reason why I give a damn and why I'm doing what I'm doing. And in five words, it's you matter, your story matters. Mm. You know, back in the fall of 2013, at that point, I didn't believe I mattered and I didn't believe my story mattered. When you don't have hope, when you're in that position and you you feel like that neither of those matter, 
it's a hard place to come back from. And so I want everyone, you know, I mean, that's, I had no intention of, of having shirts uh, be a, something that I offer. And before I know it, I, you know, I was making shirts with you matter, your story matters and watching, you know, people just started sending me these pictures wearing the shirt. And so many people have sent in stories of how they've been stopped and asked about what was on their shirt. And it's been a conversation starter. And that's why I, I'm doing this because I want everyone to know whether you're, you know, reco in recovery or struggling with addiction, or you're struggling to love yourself for who you are and the body that you're in, that you absolutely matter and your story matters. Well, you know, it's June and we're recording this in June and it'll release in June of 2019. So it's pride month. And as I'm listening to your story, I just want to say, I celebrate you. You know, your story is obviously anyone listening to this will echo what I'm saying. Your story has obviously not been easy. No one's story is easy. Everyone's got shit they got to deal with. Right. right. But your story has not been easy, but you're here. You said in, while you were sharing your story today that you've been suicidal twice. Those are two times in your life when you could have left this life and you wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be having this conversation. And you didn't. You stayed and you're fighting for, you know, your life and your future. You know, you're making it happen. Right. And so I just want to I just want to say that here as we begin to wrap up, you know, not just this month because it's Pride Month, but, you know, I celebrate you. Um, who you are is good. Uh, it's more than OK. And uh, I'm glad you're still around. You know, thanks for sharing your story here today. I, I can't even imagine half the stuff you've, uh, you know, been through. It's just, it's, it seems like a very, very hard road. But I'm sure, I hope you're now feeling like, oh, things are looking up, you know, like things are kind of coming together after that long, long, hard road, right? Absolutely. I, you know, I, not to, not to end on a, a cliche or anything, but, you know, I, I do have a, a verse um, from the Bible that I really, believe is is centered in my story and that and that is that God works all things together for good mm. for those who you know who love him and I I just believe that this is God working out good through my story um, to maybe help somebody else that's awesome everybody gets this question at the end and I I would be remiss if I did not put it in front of you as well because I th I'm excited to hear I'm always excited to hear what people are gonna say and so you know, someday, I hope many, many years from now, you are going to die. The hypothetical part of this scenario, I've been asked to give you a eulogy. And so I am standing there in front of your family, your friends, um, everybody that has been helped by you, my sister's there, everybody's there, you know, celebrating and mourning your passing. And again, I get to stand up and speak words about your life and legacy to all these people. What do you hope that I would say Lisa, on that day about your life and legacy? I would hope you would say that when you were with me, that you knew you mattered. You didn't just know it, you felt it and that you felt loved and that it was genuine. That's really all I would want. That's beautiful. That's a life worth living and a legacy worth passing on. So that's awesome. Uh, Lisa, this has been tremendous. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. And for anybody that's uh, listening and wants to hear more, thesoberhipster.com, at thesoberhipster on Instagram. Uh, check out what Lisa's doing. Get involved. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe one of the boxes isn't for you. 
but I know for a fact someone that you know uh, needs one of these boxes, needs to get connected to what Lisa's doing with the Sober Hipster. So um, let's do that to support Lisa. Lisa, thanks again for uh, all that you do and thanks for joining us here today. I loved my conversation with Lisa. I hope you did too. So quickly, my takeaway from this chat with Lisa and with many people close to me over the last few years that were in dark places, attempted suicide, and others that ended up taking their lives. Here's what I have learned, friends. Don't assume that because someone is smiling, looks happy, has a great job, everything looks like it's going well for them. Don't assume they are doing well. Don't assume they aren't engaging in unhealthy behaviors behind closed doors. Don't assume they aren't on the brink of making a disastrous decision in their life. Always check in. When someone comes to mind, text them, call them right away. Check in right away. I have found out so many times that when I have sent that text, when someone comes to mind or sent that email or picked up the phone or just drove over to see a certain someone, I have found out so many times that that is exactly what they needed in that moment for a variety of reasons. So whenever someone comes to mind, text them, call them, check in immediately. Again, there are so many takeaways from Lisa's life and story, but that's what I've been contemplating lately. If you enjoyed our chat and want to learn more about Lisa and or her story boxes, visit thesoberhipster.com and follow her on Instagram at thesoberhipster. You can find links and more information about this podcast conversation and all things Let's Give a Damn by going to letsgiveadam.com right now. If you love what we're doing on the show, please tell a friend or maybe leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or consider giving us a few dollars each month to support the production and execution of this show by going to patreon.com forward slash let's give a damn right now. Two more patrons this past week signed up for $5 a month. So grateful for you both. If you want to jump on that train and help us out, we would greatly, greatly appreciate it. This podcast episode was created by Chad Snavely and me, yours truly. The music is by our friend and fellow damn giver, Propaganda. I can't wait to spend more time with you again next week. Love you all. Peace. <laughs>